Hi chatters, Lee Sales here, doing a naughty thing, recording straight into my iPhone instead of on the Zoom recorder and doing it in a very echoey room as well. Hi Brenda, I bet you love me. Um, how you all doing? Hope everything's good. Just letting you know this next episode is a highlights package of some of the uh, funny bits from our show that we did in Brisbane. Hope you enjoy it and uh, we'll be seeing you again soon or talking to you again soon. Bye. One of the things I really like about the Chat 10 group is just how kind everyone is and how you sometimes come across stories if you're in the Facebook group that seem really amazing. Um, One of my favourites so far, I think it was this year, maybe late last year, I think it was this year, was um, a woman had dropped her casserole dish on the ground that belonged to her nana. Did anyone see that? And uh, it had shattered and she said, oh, I just, I'm so heartbroken because, you know, I had this dish of my nana's and it's got great um, personal significance. And then another woman jumped on and said, well, actually, if you collect up all the pieces and send them to me, I'm a mosaic artist and I'll make it into something for your piece of art. So you've got, you know, you can still have it. And I thought, oh, that's really lovely. And, and I also thought, oh, I bet you it's going to be some god-awful, horrible, bloody... <laughs> Something that I'd been immediately. This is the dark heart of sales. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that would be, that'll be awkward <laughs> and then what would I do with it? That's you right, I'd it receive it. Oh, no, sorry, Nana, Ben. Um, so, but then... Mother's when the, in the audience, Lee. When the, when the woman who made it posted the photograph of what she had made, it was so beautiful. It was absolutely incredible. It was just so fantastic. So it was like this really kind gesture and it turned out the woman was absolutely an, ama- an amazing artist and, and not she some street is, crank. And we don't <laughs> and we don't want to mortify her, but we're going to make her come on stage. Her name's Claire Green because we want to give her a little present of chat 10 stuff to say thank you for being awesome. Are you here, Claire? So let's did did she show up? Oh, here she is over here. Oh, here we go. Oh, and some chocolates too. That's so nice. Wow, lucky I had oh, that over on stage. Otherwise, she would have whipped to. out the chocks. Can, can, are you someone, Claire, that's just mortified at getting singled out? Are you all right? She's so, okay. Breathe. Because I just want to ask one question, exactly like on 7.30. Come up here. <laughs> <laughs> is this a reliable return to surplus? Is it? <laughs> well, is it? What is the difference between real GDP and nominal GDP? No. Um, I just want to ask, what made you, instead of just thinking, oh, that's, that's sad, um, oh, I could make that one, I'm too busy, what made you think, actually, I will do that? You're never too busy to help. You know? And, I don't know, it's special. It was special to her, I could see that. She was heartbroken. And when you've got a gift or you're... You have a lovely husband who lets you indulge yourself in what you do. Thank you. <laughs> Although well, technically that's I not a favour. I believe in paying it forward. <laughs> it's just... Well, he's the lucky one, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so I believe you should pay it forward in any way you can. And, and I got so much out of doing it. I was a nervous wreck during the process <laughs> when it was finished. Right. Don't wreck Nana's precious casserole dish. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you so much for doing it. It was really lovely. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Also, where did you get those shoes? They are the greatest shoes I've ever seen. There's a guile. Oh, God, that's so good. good. Look, there's a, there's a hot pink heel. There's a stripe. I'm not quite nice ready jumper. to get nude on stage, although I feel like... Um, 
Now, so tell me about, so we both, uh, it, it doesn't really count as a clang, I don't reckon, if it cancels each other out, because we both interviewed Hillary Clinton this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. What can we say? So tell me about, how was it for you? Well, well, um, I didn't actually interview her. I introduced her and Julia Gillard uh, on stage at the Melbourne giant event featuring those two giantesses and you have interviewed her for 7.30 which is going to air Monday? It's going to air on Monday, yeah. Um, but you uh, did the same role as me at the Sydney event. Yeah. Um, and I've heard your tales before about dealing with sort of massive American leadership figures and the security involved but wow, it was very, very fun um, and there were just more spooks than I have ever seen before. But the thing that mainly struck me was, and this is incredible given that she's um, no longer in office as Secretary of State, nor is she currently a candidate for anything, she has this just ongoing um, aura of significance that just means that she needs protection everywhere. Um, And I was struck by how cautiously her time was parceled out and how when she walked into the room everybody was sort of needing something from her which I just think would be so exhausting um we had a um uh, a scheduled sort of catch-up um she had a 20-minute catch-up with Julia they called that rapport building, rapport building. I... yeah the best thing about her entourage was she had this fabulous um I think it, basically it's her Gary um but this is a young woman called Joy who was so impressive. So she um, came into this sort of waiting. We were all sort of milling around anxiously because it was starting late. And she was sort of um, looking through the crowd of people and you could tell that she was facially scanning all of us. And then she facially scanned me and she said, you're Annabelle? And I said, oh, my God, yes, I am. And she said, you're the MC." And I said, mm-hmm. And she said, okay. And I could see that she was sort of memorising me and I said, are you incredibly good with faces? And she said, yes, ma'am. And I said, so is that, are you the recognising person? She said, "Mm mm-hmm. And I said, so if I met you again in two years, would you remember my name? And she said, probably. (laughs) And I just want to be that woman. Of course, I immediately forgot her name and then was too (laughs) embarrassed to ask. So I had to, like, sneak up to her colleague later and say, what's the face lady name? Excellent person. What's her name? Joy. So Joy was the best thing about the whole thing. So, and then we, I got ushered in at the end of Julia and Hillary's rapport building time. And then I got like an extra 10 minutes of rapport building. Um, my rapport with Julia's okay already. So that was okay. But she's incredibly good at warm conversation. Like I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. We had talked about lots of things and then at exactly the right time, two of her books materialised and were handed over inscribed lovingly and then photographs and then out. Oh, so you um, got assigned one? Yeah. Oh, well, it said, go. Lee, where are you? Uh, <laughs> why are you working tonight and why do I have to put up with this fluffhead instead of you? But, I mean, still, it's still signed, right? So, um, but the, the, the worst thing that I did, I, I committed a serious kind of blunder. I haven't actually told Lee about this because it would be more fun to tell her on stage. So... <laughs> She's got quite a detailed rider, right? She clearly, um, you know, has given a lot of speeches and she knows exactly what she wants. She's got order queue in place. She's got um, um, some 
you know, special drinks that she needs as well. And I was milling around backstage um, after the youth choir had performed. And they'd sort of, like, there were heaps of them and they'd sort of been through and then out again. And I was hanging around the side. Um, the secretary uh, was yet to appear on stage. And there was a couple of glasses there and I was thirsty. So I had... I knocked the cardboard to- little lid off a glass and it was like hot water. I'm like, oh, fantastic. I just feel exactly like hot water because I'm feeling a bit croaky. So I'm like... Just sort of, you know, looking around, waving at joy. And then... uh, And then um, the stage manager comes over to me in this kind of incredible flat and says, Annabelle? I said, what? He said, you've just drunk Secretary Clinton's special hot water. And... Then I looked at this receptacle in my hand and it was kind of like a special goblet, I guess, oh. now, that I, now that I think about it. And then I looked and realised that I had taken it off quite a special-looking silver platter. And there were two of them there. She has two cups, like glasses, you know, like those sort of latte glasses that you get in fancy cafes, which I don't really like. Um, they've got a little metal handle. Uh, and they had these little... Um, quite crown-like cardboard covers on them, which I had sort of just, like, flicked off and, yeah. Given, so then there was this you. incident about, like, what to do, you know, because I had obviously slobbered all over uh, one of just, her. I think it's a good time to sound a note of caution about this kind of behaviour, given that you were about to go to London to do the royal wedding. Yeah. I'm going to be bounced from that thing pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. So then what happened? So we decanted the rest of the hot water that I had befouled with my lips um, <laughs> into another cup and then the cup was like medivaced out to be steam cleaned <laughs> and brought in and re-topped with hot water just in time. Like it was quite That's the scene. Yeah. Wow. I felt like a really big idiot because like, <laughs> everyone was just quietly disappointed in me. Uh, it was the Sydney Writers' Festival last weekend. It was, and that seems like such a long time ago because uh, so much weird shit has happened since then. And that is also true. many tears have been shed. <laughs> so I did uh, an event on the Friday night with a woman called Katie Turr, who uh, is the NBC correspondent who was on the Trump campaign from day one, the day that he announced his candidacy, she was with him. So she did something like 568 days Every day, with Donald and he's Trump. a huge fan of hers, right? Huge. Oh. Right? He was. They, we played the clip in the thing about where he, you know, it's a rally of like you know six thousand Trump supporters and thirty journos, and he singles her out as being, you know, little Katie's down there. She's horrible. She's incompetent. You know, she's after me. And so then there's this whole booing, and she said her phone's pinging with her mum going, "Oh my god." Oh. Um, so she ta- she's written a book called Unbelievable, which is about her time covering the Trump campaign. Um, and so she talked all about that, which was really interesting. It's interesting too, Australians' appetite for sort of Trump and, and American politics is just really, really strong. It sold out Town Hall in Sydney, really, really huge. Yeah, she was um, pretty great on Q&A. That was not oh, a bad panel, that. that one. But, yeah, she's, um, I don't know, um, I think when you're part of that, Trump campaign as a journalist, you then go into this sort of secondary role as explainer of what happened. Like there's a lot of kind of blowback against the American media for kind of somehow allowing Trump to happen. Did you get, I mean... I asked Hillary last night because we were on Clang. the terms. As we were I just said, having a post-coital cigarette, you know, it's just a... <laughs> I said, Hills, I hope I can call you that. Um, 
No, I just said to her, look, you know, I try and, you know, I try with her as well to ask a few challenging questions like, you know, she, when you ask her like what went wrong, she blames all of the external factors. And, you know, there was plenty, there was fake news, there was Russian interference, all of that. But there's also, um, you know, everyone brings their own, you're, you're the face, you're the name on the ticket, so you bring your own mistakes to it. And so I asked her about that and said, you know, are you in any denial about your own culpability, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, at the end we were talking and I was saying I always try to interview people by firstly thinking what would any reasonable person in my place be interested to know and also, you know, what are the, what are the sort of weaknesses or the holes in their argument that need picking apart and so forth. And I try to um, do that from a position of reason and logic. And then, you know, 99 people out of 100 respond, you know, with something at least reasonably rational. Um, but... Trump does not, like he doesn't um, respond and speak in that manner. And so I said to her, I know already that if we were to land an interview with Trump, that my regular way of interviewing would not work because he just wouldn't respond to what I was asking. So how do you actually deal with somebody like that? And she said, I mean, I don't know if this would work or not, but she said that she thinks that you'd have to be more aggressively in his face in the way that he is saying but that's not true. You know, why are you exaggerating and just be calling him out on the spot? But I, look, I don't, I don't even know if that would work. It's hard to know. I don't know how I would approach an interview with that guy. Um, I think you'd have to start it. You'd have to conduct it over Twitter to get his attention, possibly. Imagine doing a kitchen cabinet with Donald Trump. <laughs> there are actually some people that that format just would not work with. Like people often say, well, people, weirdly enough, people say, oh, can't, well, you should do a kitchen cabinet with Bob Catter. And because, you know, Bob's hilarious or whatever. And I just, it, it would not be possible. It would be uneditable. It would be, it, it would have no shape. Like it's it funny just, you raise Bob Catter because yeah. I think he is the closest person in manner of speaking that I've seen to Donald Trump and he's impossible to interview. Really hard. You just get this sort of viscous flow of verbiage that is impossible to kind of mm. interrupt or shape or direct or it's just like a performance piece. Yeah. Anyway, um, some people are mad. <laughs> yeah. well, some people are mad for it. The interesting thing that Hillary Clinton said, um, she obviously um, is still doing a lot of thinking about what they want, but she's written a whole book about it. But um, she said that there was some research that came out recently, look, like digging really deep into um, the difference between um, or, or looking at voters who voted for Obama um, either once or, or twice, but didn't vote for her. And um, it was looking at what they were influenced by, particularly in the um, digital space and news stories that were flying around um, and she said there were three stories or internet kind of memes or rumours that influenced this particular group of voters. One was the story that she was dying um, and that she had Parkinson's or that she was, you know, close to death or whatever. And I noticed even the other night, because she had a big scarf on, there was a whole lot of people saying, see, that's because she's had her spine replaced by something or other. Like oh. there was a real like... Oh, yeah, that's why she's got the scarf on because the whole body's been transplanted or something. Like, there's a really serious oh kind of my like, well, it was pretty cold. It was the coldest night in 40 years in Melbourne. That may explain the scarf. I don't know. Um, but I was surprised by the virulence of, like, I saw that on social media just after she'd appeared, even in Melbourne. Um, and the second one was the. Um, story that she had um, arranged to supply weapons to ISIS. 
Um, and a tangential rumour connected to that was that she and Barack Obama had co-established ISIS. Oh, my God. For real. This was an influential story that was going around. And the other one was um, that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump was quite an um, influential one as well, even though Donald Trump had just, like, slammed the hell out of the Pope for saying nice things about immigrants. So um, It's yeah. so weird. Somebody – I don't know if it was um – you know, accurate or not, but somebody sent me a photo last night, which was some rally somewhere in the US where yesterday, that occurred yesterday, where people were chanting, lock her up. And you think, man, like, it's 18 months ago. Like, the level of, it's interesting, the level of hate, because you think, you know, surely, like, yeah, I just, I don't understand why she's such a lightning rod of hate. I mean, I know people feel strongly about politics often, but, like, she's gone now, you know. I don't see people say, about Al Gore running around saying, lock him up, or, you know. And the other interesting thing that she said that I thought was so relevant to our domestic situation was that she talked about her experience um, as a woman in politics and she said, look, people really liked me when I was in a supporting role. Like, they loved... Um, I was really popular as First Lady. I was really popular as Secretary of State. And I think when she left um, Secretary of State, she had something like a 67% approval rating. I don't know. She had these figures suspiciously close to the top of her mind, um, <laughs> as you would. Um, I can't remember them now, but high 60s, I think, was the um, the ballpark. And that just – as soon as she put up her hand formally to be a candidate for the presidency, it really dived. And her theory is that um, that – for women in politics, you you are you have to be liked, and you are liked if you are supporting somebody else. But you start to encounter real difficulties once you start, you know, supporting yourself, you know, and backing yourself for a position of leadership. Which I just thought actually kind of mirrors the Gillard experience a little but I bit. Think you could say similar of men. Like look at Malcolm Turnbull, same thing. Like he was liked when he was in the wings. I think there's when he was certain... supporting Tony Abbott. No, I don't think. <laughs> It's about, I think, when you're in the wings, because you're not front and centre, you don't have the level of scrutiny. I think I think the difference is, I think everyone, when they get to the front, often, you know, you're not as popular or as well-liked as when you're, when you're one of those supporting players. But the difference is that I think the attacks on the women have that gender component to them. Yep. I think there is definitely a sniff of that. Um, I um, went through the Sydney Writers' Festival and did a lot of um, panic pre-reading because I like, if I'm going to be attending an event if I what I hate sometimes is when you meet a writer at the Sydney Writers Festival we haven't read their book and then you go away and read it afterwards and it's the greatest book you ever read and when you met them you're all like oh I'm sorry are you uh, oh and then you're like <laughs> you realize subsequently that you really could have had a fabulous conversation with that person I was determined not to let that happen um sadly the people whose books I read I didn't meet and uh <laughs> And, and several of them didn't show up. So like, wow. so I read Francisco Cantu's book, um, The Line Becomes a River, which I would absolutely recommend even though he had to pull out at the last minute of the Writers' Festival. Um, it's such a timely book. It's um, He is um, kind of a – as a young academic, he left academic academia and went to work as a border guard along the border between Mexico and America and he um, it was a full kind of like riding out finding people who were trying to cross the border on foot and um, bringing them into custody and having them processed and it was the book is like a, an account of his a certain amount of conflict within himself I mean he went into this job to learn more about the border as 
almost like as a as a being, you know. He almost invests it with a sort of sacred significance. His mother had been um, a ranger in those desert areas and so she had a really emotional connection to the area. He's half Mexican, half um, North American himself. And he um, he really struggles and he eventually leaves the kind of like frontline position and then later in the book he's kind of working um, in a cafe and he becomes friends with this guy who he then discovers is an illegal immigrant and he then goes on this sort of strange journey with this friend. It's just, it's a really um, informative book, you know, like those books that you read that are a great story but then you also at the end of it know a lot more because there's a lot of um, history of the border and how it's delineated and how it's been policed and it kind of makes you by the end feel um, more ready for the debate about the policing of that border that's going on in America right now. Do you know what the real shame is though? His publisher told me because he pulled out of coming to the festival because his book had become so mired in, um, you know, controversy and hate and, you know, all the polarised stuff. And he's just some dude who's lived it, who's written a book about it, and then he become this lightning rod of, of complete... Is that why he pulled out? Because yeah. it was so full on. Yep, he's just, no, he's just too bruised by what, what he's... Because he's done the publicity rounds in the US and he just feels like, I just don't like it's that. A, it's a really non-didactic story. It's a really gentle tale. All he's doing is saying what happened to him and what he saw. And... It's one of those books that doesn't really draw conclusions for you, really. It just shows you from both angles how this situation works, you know. And um, it's so it doesn't have an end point or a conclusion, really. Um, it's quite an evocative sort of book. It's like it's lovely. It's it's not sort of fancily written. It just tells you stuff, and so it's a really useful book. I'm actually really. Horrified to hear that he's been getting smashed up over it because yeah. there's nothing in the book to warrant that really. Um, it's a sign of the uh, ages, isn't it? Sure, you just go. I mean, just talk about your experience or your observations. I know. I mean, it's completely. I mean, there's. He is just telling the story of what he saw. There's no supposition, or, or he doesn't um, lunge into any great grand theories. Just says what happened to him. Mm. God, that sucks so much. Hey, I noticed somebody put some snacks for us up. Yeah. That looks like a hedgehog. Is that a hedgehog? Who put, who put this up and yell out what it is? Get oh. out of town. Rip it open. I read another Sydney Writers Festival book which just I thought was an absolute knockout. I'm sure some of you have already read it. It's called The Trauma Cleaner by Sarah Krasnerstein. Have you have you read it? Oh, it's it's so this woman, um, she lives in Australia. She's kind of American-Australian. I think she pings back and forth a little bit. And she's an academic, I think, Sarah Krasenstein. I think this is her first book. I've not heard of her before. And so she has um, interviewed and profiled and written a whole book about this woman called Sandra. And Sandra is a trauma cleaner. She runs a company that goes in and cleans houses that normal cleaners will not go anywhere near. So they are the houses of hoarders um, or of um, houses where someone has been murdered or where someone has died and no one has known. It's like the absolutely um, gritty, traumatic end of life that she deals with and... The book starts off and this author has visited and gone on scene with Sandra and seen her interact with her clients. Obviously sometimes she's cleaning houses where someone has died but often she's cleaning houses where someone is still living and um, in a 
huge pile of stuff that no one's been inside the house for years apart from this person. And so the book gradually introduces you to Sandra and the techniques that she uses to put people at their ease. And it turns out she's kind of like this magical social worker as as well as coordinating the tidying up these people's houses. And then you start to learn a bit more about Sandra's own story. And Sandra wasn't born as Sandra. Sandra was born as a boy and she's um, now something like mid-60s, I think. And so you start to learn the story of Sandra's life. And some of it is sort of confusing because Sandra isn't entirely a reliable narrator, um, but the author is just gently trying to... It's almost... There's a double storyline going on because you you see through the writer's eyes Sandra coaxing these people in their crammed houses full of hoarded rubbish and rats and stuff, coaxing them to give up their things and to peel back these layers of grime and filth in these houses. And at the same time the writer is trying to peel back the layers of Sandra's life, um, which has involved substantial heartbreak, difficulty. She's worked um, as a funeral director, as a sex worker. Like there's just an incredible series of lives that this woman has gone through, some of which were as a man um, and father of two kids. Um, and it's just it's just inexpressibly touching, this book. It's so original and so beautiful and such a great example of um, a writer just noticing somebody and listening and caring enough to try and straighten out their life and, and, and establish what the story is and sort of immortalise it in a way. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. So a couple of things that I've read recently, one which was like a hard read and one of which was an easy read. Um, Sarah Ferguson, who hosts Four Corners at the ABC, has written a little essay called On Mother, which is about the death of her mother, um, which was sudden and unexpected and there were some unexplained elements to it and so they had to have a coronial inquest in the UK. And so it's partly about losing her mother but then it's partly about her effort to find out what actually happened. It's very Can you imagine being anyone in the medical community who was involved in caring for that oh. woman and then all of a sudden like this sort of Sarah Ferguson's Boeing case. door opens and then you've got Sarah Ferguson asking you some questions. <laughs> yeah. Ably assisted by Tony Jones. <laughs> yeah, I know. She says at the end of the book that the people in the coroner's court said that they'd never had an inquest like it because of the sort of forensic detail that um, Sarah and the family brought to it. Um, so that was a really interesting read. Um, the other one was a sort of easy book to read, just like a sort of if you're tired, page-turner type book. Do you remember I talked about the book I read on Easter holidays? Um, oh, the name of it escapes me now. I was probably just pretending to listen anyway, so it's fun. <laughs> anyway, it's on the website. Um that book on the cover said something like, oh, the greatest thriller since Apple Tree Yard. So I thought, okay, well, now I'll go and find Apple Tree Yard. So it's a book by Louise Doughty. It is a, what you'd call a... It's called Apple Tree Yard. Apple Tree Yard. Um, it's a court thriller, basically. Um, the premise of it is... Oh, the one I read on holidays was the one about the politician who was having the consensual affair and it became about an issue of consent, had there been consent involved. Um, this one was about um, 
a woman who is, and I'm not spoiling because it's early on, she's having an affair, um, things go wrong, it ends up in a court case and it's sort of, it's leaping back and forth in time but it's just a really good pacey courtroom drama. So if you're looking for something, you read on You do love a twisty plot, don't uh, you? I do love a you twisty, love a twisty plot. plot. I do. I wish that I had a good thing to read on the plane on oh, the way to well, the UK. Oh, that's perfect. But yeah. I, but Apple Tree Yard. Uh, yeah, but love, I've, I'm, I'm reading the biography of Meghan Markle <laughs> by Andrew Morton. Seriously, man, like I know that Andrew Morton has probably sold more copies oh. of books than like there are people living in Queensland, but I just think he just cannot write that guy. Like, I no. mean, and also, like, there's a lot of detail about, you know, what subjects she chose in year 11 and that sort of thing. Oh, God. And I know, like, the big, the big read from the book, like, the big headline from the book was that she had posted her wedding ring back to her first husband rather than like giving Give it, it to him. back in person or something that seemed to be like a real mm. issue I'm just like oh, I don't, how friendly does I don't do you need to be I, I don't know anyway that seemed to be the sort of the real ball tearing yarn out of the book um <laughs> now the uh, selection talk- of french in year 11 you know <laughs> less exciting well, are we going to do some questions on the way home and apple mm-hmm. tree yard Reward yourself on the way home and read Apple Tree Yard. Yeah, maybe I will. That's a good idea. <laughs> All right, let's – do we have a microphone situation? I think that our microphones might be the microphone situation. Is that Oh, yeah, possible? okay. Well, why don't you just roam Does around? Does anyone and... have a question? Um, put your hand up if so and I'll come and sit on your lap or something. What's your question? Hello. Hello. Um, I would like to go into politics and so I was wondering what's the one quality you think is missing from politicians today? Well, I've had a funny experience this week um, that has involved, you know, really weird coincidence. My brother-in-law is now a senator, right? This has nothing to do with me at all, right? So that Tim Stora guy who just knocked back all the corporate tax cuts is my brother-in-law. Weird, huh? And he never had anything really to do with politics. I didn't even discuss politics with him that much. But then he kind of moved from Shanghai back to China, uh, back to Adelaide, and got sort of involved with Nick Xenophon and ran as a candidate and, you know, after about three of the colleagues got knocked out by Section 44, suddenly, whoa, he's in the Senate as an independent. And the thing that's been really interesting to me is, like, he's a, like, you've interviewed him, he's a, like, he's a lovely guy, he's very rational, he's, like, he likes to be evidence-based, he doesn't have a party allegiance because he's now left the Nick Xenophon party or what remains of it. And the thing that I've noticed about the feedback on him is people saying like, oh, isn't it amazing to hear a politician who just like listens to the arguments and then makes a decision and doesn't seem to be. Yeah. And I'm thinking that is tragic, guys. If that is surprising, then we are all in massive trouble. It is surprising and we are all in massive trouble. Um, yeah, I would, I would say straight talking, which fits a bit with that. So that, maybe that can be your thing too when you go into politics, which you should do, please. What um, about two more questions and I'll run around and do it. Okay, no, over here. There and there. Okay, I'm just going to come here. Pass that down. Have you ever seen a band here, Sales? Oh, no, you don't have a um, thing here. No, no, I'll ask you that I'm in a minute. I'm asking the question. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter's giving me that look. It's like, it's you. Don't embarrass me. <laughs> embarrass her. Go on. If you, could, if you could do anything else other than what you're doing now, what would that be? crab um, I think it's obvious I for me would, what ask any of the chickies <laughs> in my pen they'll tell you I'm the biggest mother hen 
you go. <laughs> I think I'd like to be a falconer. <laughs> I would. I did really? some falconry when I went to the UK recently. And I really liked that, novel, that book, H's for Hawk. And that was all about falconry. And I'd also like to fly on one of those flights in Gulf Airlines or Gulf Air or whatever. You know the ones where they have like little places for the falcons to ride? That's so cool. So I'll tell you what though, I went, I went, so I went um, to the UK where I used to live with Jeremy and now we, we have one child over there but we've since had two more. We took all three of them over there to see, you know, where we used to live. And um, what we did for Jeremy's birthday is we went and stayed in a castle for a night. It's called Bovey Castle. It's in Devon. And they've got a falconer there who um, – and he's just got all these mad birds. And you can, like, put a thing on your wrist and it'll come and land on your wrist and give you a terrible scare. Um, but he's got this one bird, which is – he's got a bald eagle, which is huge, loud, angry and destructive. Ooh. And um, – we couldn't hold that one because it's so vicious. It's actually hospitalised the falconer five times apparently and yet he still hangs around. I don't know. This is still your dream the great, job. The greatest story that this falconer told about this um, bird was his name is Barbara or something like, you know, completely innocuous sounding, <laughs> even though it just rip your throat out literally. <laughs> anyway, he said, oh, the, 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 the eagle doesn't really like the golfers. This this castle, which is now a hotel, is, is surrounded by um, golf links and apparently one day this, this bird with its incredibly long-range vision just spotted an incredibly um, vulnerable-looking golfer in the distance, <laughs> launched itself off and just like zoomed in and just hit this guy and knocked him unconscious oh. and he like just fell forward onto the turf and then this eagle just sat on his back ripping at the flesh on his back with its beak and I'm just thinking, wow, how did that work out with, you know, management and everything? <laughs> And this falconer was saying, yeah, I did um, – I, like, ran down there, ripped the bird off. <laughs> Barbara, <this>. stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then just, like, removed the bird from the area and, um, and went home and then just sweated bullets for, like, the next – I mean, I called an ambulance and everything, obviously. And, um, and apparently just waited for the lawsuit. And the golfer never issued proceedings or formally oh. even complained to the hotel <laughs> – and later, later returned to the hotel and asked if he could, like, meet Barbara um, and... Uh, imagine, how and low, imagine how low maintenance you'd have to be in life to be like, oh, I just got knocked unconscious and my flesh torn off by an eagle, but I just I don't want to create a fuss. Apparently, he was, his big concern was that if he made a fuss, the bird would be destroyed and he didn't want that to happen. Plus, it gave him the best golfing anecdote... <laughs> Ever, ever That's supplied right. by he'd the be, natural he'd world. Be like, well, you know how you shot a birdie? Yeah. <laughs> See, I do. I have got some sport moves, don't I? Where was the other person's question? There is an here? eagle in golf, isn't there? Yeah. Let's yeah. go. All of the golf people going, she missed the obvious go. Uh, <laughs> let's all stroke together <laughs> like the Princeton crew <laughs> when you're stroking mama, mama's stroking you. <laughs> Who knows where that song's from? The great thing is that you have... Uh, no. can, I, oh, sorry. can I say you're the most amazing pair to have gone through what you've gone through today and stand up there. It's amazing. Uh, 
I just want to know if you've caught up with the Americans or The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I'm glad you asked because I watched season four of the current season of The Americans on the plane on the way what? here. Did you just burn all the way through it? Season, oh, sorry, episode four of all the right, current sorry. season, sorry. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm really liking it. I feel like it's sort of a return to form. I haven't seen one second of it. Yeah, all I've got in my brain is your completely whacked out theories of what's going to happen. And now in some sort of crepuscular part of my brain, I think that that's what's happened. No, it hasn't actually. Yeah. It's not what has happened at all, so you can, everyone can let go of that. Um, <laughs> the, the one thing that I'm finding... I mean, like, it's continuing in the same vein, I guess, as we've discussed, which is that it's just unravelling. Um, <laughs> Phillips, and this is not spoiling anything, Phillips become very enamoured of line dancing. So obvious that was going to happen. Yeah. And it's just, like, it's... I love the sort of, um, like in the final episode ever of The Sopranos where they're just having their diner food and Don't Stop Believing's playing and yet like just the tension and the horror is so overwhelming. Every time Philip goes line dancing, it's like that. Not because you think something bad's going to happen, but because you worry that um, it's, it's, it's the uncertainty about, well, is Philip actually just becoming normal and he just likes line dancing, like lots of people like line dancing, or is he... Is he now crazy? Because <laughs> he's going line dancing. So anyway, it's I'm absolutely loving it. I haven't watched The Handmaid's Tale season two. Have you started yet? No, I haven't. And I've I'm, been I, too I, busy reading royal biographies. I must confess, I'm thinking I may not because I have just seen so much commentary about how disturbing and violent it is that it puts me off. Yeah, see? Okay, there's a rumble of recognition. You think we should watch it? Put, hands up if you think we should watch it. Hands up if you think we should not watch it. Okay, oh. there's more yes votes than no votes, I I'd think. like to see a Venn diagram of that with people that liked and read A Little Life. <laughs> what was that? Put it on Do the it Facebook. On Facebook. Yeah, okay. yeah, we should just right. watch it live on Facebook and then um, we can... <laughs> oh. That would be just such a gripping viewer experience, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like goggle box but less fun. <laughs> and thanks for saying that we were amazing to survive what we did today. It was just a late plane. It was nothing. We, we revved it up for the comic effect. Yeah. I mean, we discussed, like, should we walk in with our bags because it'll look really funny? Like, we've, you know, we've, yeah. It did suck, but <laughs> but we've revved it up for comic effect. I was genuinely freaking out. a little bit of, <laughs> just ruined a little bit of the magic of showbiz there for everybody. <laughs> Thanks for whipping the sparkle out of that particular occasion, Sales. We've been crabbing Sales. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming and being patient. Thank you.